Hello and welcome to this Endo Life episode 7. I'm Jessica Duffin and this podcast is all about bringing new guests who are battling chronic conditions and mental health issues in their own unique ways and are changing the lives of others through their amazing work. Today I'm talking to Megan Cleary of Bad Periods. Megan is a former Wall Street marketing executive and fashion writer. She had two books on shoes, turned women's health advocate after her 31-year journey to diagnosis. I know, crazy long. Megan has endometriosis, has suffered from fibroids, and is a DES daughter. Uh, So just to give a bit of context there, DES is a synthetic hormone, which uh, we discussed more in the interview, Um, But it resulted in women having reproductive abnormalities and disorders, plus a higher rate um, or higher risk of endometriosis. Megan explains it a bit more in the interview. On this episode, we're talking about her incredibly long diagnosis time, why she began bad periods, the type of treatments she's been testing out over the years. And trust me, she's tried a lot of them and how to get the right care from medical professionals. We also talk about a subject that I've been wanting to bring up for a while now, but it is a tricky one, um, and that's endocrine disruptors. They're a bit controversial, and not everyone believes in their impact on hormone functions and conditions such as endo. I've tried to keep the conversation as mindful as I can, because the last thing I want to do is create fear um, and offer no solution. So we talk about the realities of living in a world with lots of different chemicals, and how a few small changes can make a difference to the impact that they have on your life and your body. As always, thank you for being here. Um, You know, please approach this conversation with an open mind. Um, Take what bits you're interested in and feel free to leave the rest. And I really hope you enjoy this one. So, Megan, you run Bad Periods. um, And I want to talk about that in more detail later on um, about, you know, why you started it but do you want to tell us a little bit about what it is and what you do yes so I have a very interesting um journey when it comes to endometriosis which is I had a 31 year lag time to diagnosis wow yeah <laughs> so, a long time let's just all take that in for a second <laughs> um so Pretty much the majority of my adult life has been spent having something that never was named. Yeah. So, um, so I have that, and then I also have my mother was given a drug while she was pregnant with me called DES. And that has resulted, um, I'm I'm known as like a DES daughter. So the the daughters and sons of women who were given that drug um, developed very high rates of endometriosis. I think there's an 80% higher chance of having endometriosis as well as fibroids, infertility, um, and across the board with men and women, there's a higher incidence of like chronic heart disease and, and some other some other um, symptoms as well, or diseases, I guess, chronic right. conditions. So I have sort of this really kind of interesting, <laughs> interesting whole journey, which is that totally, um, yeah. And it's been really interesting because when I did find out that I had 
endometriosis last year. It was confirmed. It was shown only in last a, year. only last year. Yeah. Jeez. I got, if you want to talk about like an official pathology report, I <laughs> got that like October, I think October 1, 2016. It was like the happiest day of my life. I mean, I can imagine it's such a, it was such a relief. There's nothing like a pathology report to just really get an endo girl excited. It's just validation. Mm. You know, it's putting a name to something that you've been told doesn't exist yeah, for your whole life. Yeah. And to have that validation about your own felt experience that you had for 31 years is obviously on an emotional and mental level it's mm. it's everything but i think it also really helps you physically because if you can't name it you can't heal it yeah of course yeah totally so yeah so i i had symptoms since i was 14 i presented very classically with um young girls often present as we know now with really bowel problems. So I had terrible, terrible explosive diarrhea and horrifying debilitating cramps Mm. beginning from about my second cycle when I was 14. And it got to the point where when I would eat anything, it would make it all worse, the cramps, the diarrhea, everything. And so I literally would do like substance diet, you know, like just substance, you know, just sort of exist on very minimal food for like a week every month. And as a consequence, got very, very skinny. (laughs) And my mother thought I had an eating disorder. She was so concerned. She didn't know what was going on. And my mother also had never had any problems with any of her periods. So my, my aunt had, but my mom never did. Mm. So the whole thing was just a complete puzzle and mystery. And Mm. I went through, I've seen total probably between 40 and 45 doctors over my journey. I've had everything from my first gynecological exams the woman, it was a, a woman OBGYN and she really shamed me because the exam was really painful and I was also extremely anxious. I was a young girl. I was 14 years old. And yeah, of course, that's always nerve-wracking at that age. I don't know what 14-year-old girl would walk into an examination like that and feel okay about it. Right? Like, seriously. Like, it's ridiculous. And you know, she told me I need to get a, a copy of Our Bodies Ourselves and get more comfortable with my body. I mean, and and what I learned later is that I have vestibulitis, which is highly sensitive, labia, so okay, any I've type of exam. Oh, yeah, vestibulitis. It's a fun okay. one. Um, <laughs> vestibulitis is... I actually got diagnosed when I went to go have my excision surgery. My doctor tests for that. Um, it's a very the easy test. It's I think you take like a Q-tip and sort of swab the um, the labia, the it's the vestibule, I guess, into the vagina. Yeah, and um, it's it can be really sensitive, and it's again it's another condition that sort of 
companies endometriosis or can okay. accompany endometriosis. What causes And then it? also, I don't know. I have no idea. And I don't know if it's something that it comes and goes right. or if it's something that's sort of permanent, but it's really, it's just a heightened sensitivity and it can be painful. And right. so, you know, pap smears and exams have always mm. been incredibly painful. I mean, also as an endo person, as the years go by, you have more and more pain and inflammation internally. So obviously like a speculum going in there is not like, yay, you know, I know I've literally got so, a paranoia about him because, um, a nurse once said to me, like, make sure you don't tense, keep relaxing. Otherwise they might pinch your skin. And now I just have this complete like fear that I'm, I'm not going to be able to control my muscles and I'm going to get pinched by this god-awful plastic or metal thing, depending on which one they're using. I hate them. Right? I mean, Horrible. and also, why would you say that, nurse? I why? know. <laughs> Tell someone <laughs> no. to, like, not be tense. Of course they're going to tense up when you say that. Oh, it might pinch your skin. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> yeah, so I that mean, was, like, my what, first sneer as well. Yeah. and. What I think is interesting is you and I are laughing about that right now. <laughs> and it's really indicative of the amount of absurd things that have been said to me and I'm sure to you mm. throughout the years when you go to the doctor. Yeah. I mean, the things that were said to me, I mean, again, beginning with get comfortable with your own body, um, That's you so need to touch yourself. Yeah, you need to touch yourself and look at your body in the mirror and become comfortable with yourself. Why are you so tense? You know, to, you know, as endo girls, we go to the doctor a million times. And mm. obviously, over my 31 years, I was told everything from you really just need to be exercising to you are constipated to. I, I mean, the the range is just totally and completely insane, mm. the things that are told to you over the years. And you kind of begin to lose, or at least I did, lose language for your internal experience. So you're mm. having a very visceral physical experience, which in my case was debilitating pain, not all month. I was quote unquote lucky. And then I was getting it really only around the time of my period, although that changed as it went on and I started to get pain on ovulation. Yeah. But also the accompanying, the fatigue, mood swings, the, mm -hmm. and when we talk about fatigue, I think we need to talk about endo fatigue, which is a whole nother level yeah, that's true. of fatigue yeah. <laughs> that I think people don't really, again, really get. It's like a fatigue where you're like, the only way I'm okay is if I just lay down right now on yeah. the floor. Like it's, <laughs> it's a deep, deep, you know, mm -hmm. fatigue. So I was having that. I was having like hypoglycemia. Later into my 30s, I started having migraine, migraine patterns. Mm -hmm. I mean, there was just such a slew of symptoms that so many. you present with. Yeah. And, you know, because it's systemic. And 
just the amount of ridiculousness that you go through as an endo patient is, you know, there's only other endo girls are the only other people you can talk about it with. And one of the things that always comes up is just the total and complete absurdity. Like I always say, like, imagine if you're going to have like endo Olympics, like it would be like a girl, like, standing there and you'd be like okay ladies we're gonna start you know we're gonna start at the start line first you're gonna be in debilitating pain you're gonna be doubled over okay great now you've gotta like (laughs) get up get in a car go to work all right you're at work and you've got to use your brain but you're in so much pain you're double okay now we're gonna add like you know what I mean it just goes on and on and on you know, mm-hmm. it's just like, it's sort of like you're running this crazy sprinting marathon. So anyway, I digress. But yeah, my, my journey was really long, filled with a lot of quote unquote top doctors. It's it's just been one of those really weird journeys. And then I got diagnosed really when I went in to have a fibroid removed. I ended up developing a um, five and a half centimeter um, fibroid in, in the, in the wall of my uterus and ended up in the emergency room because the fibroid, which I learned later, this is very common, tried to actually birth itself out of my (laughs) uterus. What? I didn't even know that was a thing. Yes. And I didn't know that was a thing either. And I've spoken to multiple women who have gone through like actual contractions. Um, It's, it's really crazy because a a fibroid, just to back up a fibroid is the benign fatty, like a little fatty tumor that Mm -hmm. you develop. The theory integrative people theorize that when you're not able to, when your body's not able to process estrogen and or progesterone, they're not a hundred percent sure which, which hormone makes them grow. Mm -hmm. But the theory is if you can't process it, your body makes what I call these like little purses (laughs) where (laughs) it stores, it stores the hormones. It's like, I can't deal with it. I'm going to make a cute little purse and just hold it over here for you. If you, (laughs) if you need this later. Um, and so they're, they're benign, they're quote unquote benign tumors. However, they can wreak such incredible havoc, even if they're tiny. And the first time I had ever heard about fibroids is, I mean, I've, you know, obviously I've gone to the gyno like a hundred thousand times and they would do like a transvaginal ultrasound and casually be like, Oh yeah, you have a couple of fibroids. You know, one is a one centimeter, one is a two centimeter, no big deal. And again, you think the doctor knows what they're talking about. So you're like, Oh, okay, no big deal you know, go about my daily life. Um, but fibroids actually, they're, they're sort of like real estate and that location is everything with fibroids. So, um, obviously very large fibroids can get problematic. I mean, there are fibroids that can develop that are as big as babies, you know, seven pounds. Um, but there are also smaller fibroids that can do things like I, it turned out I had one sitting in front of my fallopian tube. So, um, and then I had one in the wall of my uterus. So those kind of things can impact fertility. Mm -hmm. They can impact obviously your hormones. And then 
because fibroids are just these fatty tumors, when you when you get pregnant and you um, start to develop a baby, your pelvis emits all these hormones that will stretch and widen like your muscles and, you know, make room for something mm-hmm. growing in your pelvis. With fibroids, that doesn't happen. And so basically, oh. you're, you're walking around with like anything from the size of like, you know, a golf ball to a bowling ball, and it's just pressing in mm. against all your organs, yeah. against your muscles. So fibroids also cause incredible pain. They can cause incredible pain. They can be totally asymptomatic as well. Right, okay. Um, they can cause incredible pain, and they also tend to cause an incredible amount of bleeding to the point where many women with fibroids are anemic and can become severely anemic. So even though fibroids are, again, benign, they can cause such massive impact on your quality of life. And they can also, because there's nowhere to sort of put them in your pelvis, they can cause organ damage or jam up against a nerve or a muscle Mm. So, and what's interesting is about 80% of women will have a fibroid over their lifetime. 80%? And, oh, yeah. They're, they're as common as like colds, basically. Like, but most oh. likely you probably have a fibroid right now. Like every, everyone gets fibroids. Right. But we just won't always um, be aware of it. You might be. Yeah. They're asymptomatic. They're small. Um, you know, even if you have a small one. You might not even care until you're trying to get pregnant and then you want to figure out where that small one is located. You know, obviously, if it's in front of a fallopian tube or something, you're going to want to get it removed. Would so, it ever, um, could, so say you didn't want to have children, is there another way mm-hmm. that you, and you didn't have any symptoms, Would it could mm-hmm. it ever go on its own or? Um, I'm not actually sure my my personal theory from what i've seen and and heard and research and my own anecdotal experience if you've got a, a fibroid that's sort of under 2 centimeters i do think that there's probably alternative you know you could probably pursue chinese medicine dietary changes okay and things like that that would sort of bring you back into balance and shrink it Mm-hmm. But the minute that it starts to get any larger, it's very difficult to, once it starts to start to, to reach a certain mass, it's difficult to reduce it without right. having it surgically removed. Okay. Yeah. So, and what's interesting is that endo and fibroids, and as you and I talked about PCOS, interstitial cystitis. All of these things, a lot of these conditions are comorbid, which means they show up all at the same time. Mm. Um, adenomyosis is another one, of course. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I think the headline is always endo, but I also think mm. that we often have, it's really good to just think about it from a, a holistic and a total perspective of what else is happening in, totally. in that in that area. And then the other thing we always want to think about is, well, and this is why when I started writing my book, my question was, why did I get endometriosis? Like, why do I have this? And then why did it take me so long to get diagnosed? Those mm-hmm. are the biggest questions that 
came to me. And when we look at all these conditions, it's really like your body's just really, really out of balance. You know, all of our bodies at this point in the Earth's history are being exposed to an incredible amount of toxins things that we can't control, even if we like ate organic kale that we grew ourselves all day, Mm. every day. There's a lot of things that we can't control. And what I think is really interesting is a lot of this, I guess we could call it environmental things are sort of showing up in women's bodies. It really, I think, highlights that we're having problems with people processing everything that's out there. I just want to backtrack a little bit um, so we can kind of, because there's just so much I want to ask you. Mm -hmm. So you were diagnosed with endo during Mm -hmm. fibroid surgery. Yeah. So I had my fibroid surgery. I I had that um, removed. I thought the fibroid was a problem. I was having all this crazy pain. Mm -hmm. I started having crazy bleeding. So I go into, I, I researched a fibroid specialist. I wanted a laparoscopic myomectomy, which is removal of the fibroids laparoscopically. And saw one of the, a, a great specialist, um, you know, at UCLA, in Los Angeles. And he mentioned in our pre-op if, that if he saw endo, he would take care of it. Okay. And I thought, oh, fantastic, great. So I go in, I do the surgery, everything goes swimmingly. Six weeks later, I go back in his office. He's like, okay, dude, you know, how are you? Checks my stitches. He's like, this is great. You're healing wonderfully. And I was like, oh, by the way, did you find endo? And he's like, oh, yeah, took care of it. And I was like, oh, wow. Like I, I literally was like, my journey is over. Yes. <laughs> you know, I just had yeah. felt like, my God, this is amazing. This is amazing. Well, fast forward about five months, I'm having really weird and bad pain. Things are starting to get weird. I'm having major hormonal problems, really crazy fatigue. Uh, and I go to see Endo What, the documentary that Shannon mm. Cohn did. And I'm sitting there and I'm like, and of course, totally ironically, I'm totally having my period while I'm watching it. You know, <laughs> it was very, it was very meta. I'm like gushing, having, watching it and like crying because there's so much validation in it. Yeah, you know, yeah. it, it was very, you know, <laughs> total catharsis on all levels. So, um, and I'm sitting there and they keep talking about excision, surgery, excision, excision. And I'm like, what, what is this excision? I don't know. And so the next day I call up my guy and I get my post-op report and it says in the post-op report, um, visualize powder burn lesions, which were fulgurated. And I'm like, Oh shit. (laughs) So I haven't heard of that term. They were fulgurated is really just another term for burning. The main differences that I understand are fulguration, ablation, and excision. And that fulguration and ablation are sort of the either burning it off or um, lasering it, ablating it with a laser. And then 
excision, obviously, is the actual removal, the cutting out of yeah. the cells yeah. on a wide, on a wide, um, wide margin, similar mm-hmm. to like an advanced cancer surgery. Now they can use the la- a laser tool to do some of that excision work, um, especially when they're working on um, bowel and stuff like that. Right. Um, and so it depends. It depends on the tool that the surgeon uses, but it's more about the, the technique um, versus the tool, as far as I understand. So most likely he didn't even, well, I know that he didn't visualize it because later when my specialist took it out, it was everywhere. So, um, sorry, so just because yeah. I think we use different terms in the UK and America. So when you oh, say okay, visualize, yeah. yeah, he didn't visualize he means didn't. to be able to identify the endometriosis. Okay. So when he said he took care of it, he did mm-hmm. some, but not these other bits. He, I, it, He's not, he wasn't trained to see it all. Right. Okay. So, so excision surgeons who are doing wide excision, the reason they are so effective are two reasons. One is they've been trained to visualize and identify all the different colors and types of endo. And two, because of the method of removal. So it's not just the excision surgery itself. It's that the fact that the surgeon can actually even see it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So what my doctor said he saw quote unquote were powder burn lesions. And I'm sure that he did see those, but he didn't see all the other endo cells that were all over my bladder, my perirectal uh, space, okay. everything. Yeah. So that's where a lot of the problems come in for so many endo patients. Because if your surgeon can't identify it properly, then they can't remove it. So even if they're doing excision and they can't see that it's there, they're not removing it. Mm -hmm. So, and in the U.S., regular OBGYNs and even fibroid specialists are not trained in that that whole suite of endometriosis and how it, how it can present. So, yeah. So I got the post-op report. I was kind of like a bell went off and I was like, huh? Okay. I'm like, I don't think this is what they were talking about in that movie. I, I think this is, I don't know, but this doesn't seem right. And, and so I went, I went up to Northern California to see Dr. Andrew Cook in Los Gatos and ended up having surgery with him six weeks later. And that was when I got my super validating pathology report. I mean, it was so funny. I'm like going into this major surgery. I think it was like, ended up being like three and a half, four hours. Oh my gosh. Like, oh, that's gross. Like no big deal. I was like, whatever. I was like going into surgery. I was like, la, la, la. <laughs> I had no fear about the surgery whatsoever. Mm. My only, only fear going into that surgery was what if he goes in and he doesn't find endo? Oh, yeah, that's, yeah, I completely understand that. And then you're just like, well, what then? Right. And I remember saying that to him in my pre-op. I was like, listen, I got to tell you, I'm I'm totally freaked out. And he just looked at me and said, "Um, most women who think they have endometriosis have it. And I was mm-hmm. like, what? He was like the first doctor to be like, yes, what you feel is what you have. Yeah. <laughs> you know? like, we were right. He was, 
you know, he was like, and he was like, I just want to tell you that in my practice, I probably had over the span of, you know, 20, 25 years, I've only had two patients where I've gone in and they, all they had were adhesions that I just had to clear out. And wow, so, that's amazing yeah, to hear. crazy, right? Yeah. But I woke up from surgery. My first words were like, you know, did they get it? And, mm. you know, my mom was like, yeah, they, it was all there and they got it all. And apparently, I don't remember, I was on morphine, but I was like fist pumping and yelling, fuck endo, getting <laughs> rolled down into the, <laughs> into the ward. Amazing. <laughs> so, you know. And then I got the path report three days later and it was like reading the story of my life. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. I mean, it's like, I just want to like frame it, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Completely. So you got, you got the, um, the report, you had the second surgery. Um, and that, so obviously that wasn't very long ago. Yeah. And what I found really interesting about, um, your site and your story is that You've been using, you said you, you know, you followed your intuition in terms of what felt right yeah. for you um, with managing endometriosis. Not that at some points, obviously, you didn't know that it was endometriosis. So mm-hmm. how have you been dealing with endometriosis since? So what kind of methods have you used um, and what did you use before? Because I think yeah. there's a lot of people who would be interested in hearing that. Well, girl, I really have done every single last thing except for IUD, which I came very close to doing mm. last summer and, and decided against it. Right. Um, but I, the thing that gave me the most relief throughout the years leading up to not, you know, not knowing that I had endometriosis, the things that would give me the most relief were super clean diet, mm-hmm. obviously removing all your classic allergen, anti-inflammatory, you know, wheat, dairy, sugar, caffeine, alcohol, corn, soy, that kind of thing. And that would really help. And um, acupuncture always, always helps just from sort of an overall perspective. Okay. And really decreasing things. And then when I was working with that nurse practitioner, I did a lot of different kind of herbs as well. So she would sort of prescribe me different herbs. Um, and I've also had really good luck with Chinese medicine and Chinese herbal formulas. Excuse me. That, <laughs> Sorry. Oh, bless you. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, Chinese medicine. I, I find that, you know, endo, endo is, you know, you either decide one of two routes. You decide palliative, which is I'm going to – manage symptoms the best that I can mm-hmm. or surgery to actually remove the cells. But both sort of need extra support. You know, you can't, I found I had surgery and then post-surgery I pursued physical therapy and I, and just regular physical therapy. I, right. I tried pelvic floor physical therapy. Um, it was a little too soon after the surgery. So it was too painful. Okay. And I'm probably going to pursue that. I'm like eight, nine months out. So I'm probably going to do a little of that, Mm -hmm. I think, when I get back to L.A. Um, But I did regular physical therapy because I had ended up having a lot of back, lower back and hip pain. Mm -hmm. 
Mm. leading up to surgery and post-surgery because I had had adhesions from this first surgery, which can, of course, just completely discombobulate all of your muscles, all of your ligaments, all of your everything. And so my body really needed help readjusting because obviously he removed all the adhesions in the second surgery as Mm -hmm. well. Yeah. So yeah, so since surgery, it's really been more about managing the hormonal aspects, the autoimmune aspects. You know, endo is still such an enigmatic disease. It has features of, you know, a non-terminal cancer, and then it also has features of autoimmune. Mm. And no one really knows where one begins and the other stops. You know, there was a study in Canada, I think it was about a year ago, where they found that endometriosis cells had the same mutations as cancer cells. However, it didn't, for some reason, it didn't develop into cancer. So there's a lot of crossover and, and, and again, until we have more research into women's reproductive health and people are underwriting that type of research, we're not going to really know. So... I just chose post-surgery, I did Chinese medicine, herbs, acupuncture, physical therapy. I do a lot of meditation and just, I try to eat clean, but I'm not like, you know, at a certain point it can get really just crazy and limiting Yeah, to eat clean all the time. <laughs> yeah. So I try And that's the thing. I think you really have to really follow your intuition Mm. about what's right for you. And that's that's really what my website is all about, is just really trying to lay out, here are all the options, Mm. see what feels good for you, see what resonates with you, and also get really, really educated so that you can ask the questions you need to ask of your doctors so that you can root yourself to an excision specialist if you need or if you want to decide that that's for you. Um, One of the things that I did on my site was I put together, I think it's the only comprehensive listing right now of excision surgeons um, around the world. That's amazing. I mean, that must have been such hard work. That's incredible that you've done that. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's 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 definitely an ongoing it's an ongoing <laughs> challenge. Um and my world directory is not is not fully fully vetted yet because um I haven't heard back actually from a lot of them. Mm. But um I'll be continuing to do that and hopefully and at least it's just like a starting point where people can go and have it all in yeah, one place. Completely. So with bad periods You've mm-hmm. got this, um, you've got your guides and mm-hmm. you want to educate women and kind of give them their options. When mm-hmm. did you launch and what was the motivation behind that for you? Well, the motivation was I have like a Wall Street research background. So when it came to this, all these conditions, I just went like balls to the wall on the research, like a crazy person. Um, and then combined with all my other, like, you know, 30 years of trying everything in the book. Um, and so I really wanted a place to put, to put all my practical information, all the information that 
I wish I had had when I was 14 years old. Yeah. So just the question, really basic questions that I wish I would have even known, or even 10 years ago when I started to think I had endometriosis and I kept going to doctors and saying, I think I have endometriosis. You think this could be a possibility? So I just wanted to put that all somewhere where it was super easy to read, organize, and that if you were just new to figuring out you had endo or fibroids, that you could just go there and get a very straightforward overview. And also to have it written in a way that is not completely doom and gloom. Yeah, which is so important. I, I really do. You know, that's part of really empowering yourself and educating yourself around this is mm. to just sort of keep looking and, and keep searching and, and obviously following your intuition. But a lot of sites are like, there's no cure. And, you know, it's very daunting when you first get the diagnosis because yeah. you're like, wait, what do I have? And there's no cure. Holy shit. Yeah, yeah. It feels it can feel like a a really bad life sentence to something, Mm. you know? So, and I've gotten some feedback. I launched it in July or no, I launched it in June. Just, yeah. Like mid June. I I know. And I really just did it like a soft launch. I haven't really, you know, promoted it that much. And I just really wanted to have information. I also have a a treatment guide, which is basically, it's about 12 pages long. So it's Mm -hmm. really, it's really long. But again, it's just sort of walking you through how to track your symptoms so that you can bring those symptoms to your doctor in the form of clinical data. Because I think what happens with us is we go to the doctor and we're like, I'm in pain. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, yeah, completely. The pain is so big and so overwhelming so there all the time, you're just like, I feel like shit, I'm in pain. Yeah. You know, those are sort of the headlines. And doctors have a difficult time with that because one of cultural stereotypes around women in pain and women in hysteria that date back hundreds and thousands of years. And B, it's difficult for them to do anything with that because then they have to go and like put it in like a medical diagnostic system, you know, Mm. like, what are you going to do? Like pain, you know what I mean? Like, so I have a whole, um, I have a pain vocabulary that I have for people so that they can, you know, is it flickering? Is it burning? Is it stinging? Um, How to track your pain, how to track your symptoms. So that you can bring that all and then how to sort of package that up in a nice way so that when you do go to your medical provider, you're saying, here are my symptoms. I am, you know, I'm at a scale eight out of 10, you know, 17 days of the month on pain. I'm having fatigue where I can't get out of bed five days of the month, you know, so you can have very specific more it's translating that felt experience into that more clinical data so a doctor can be like oh okay wait let me see you know how I can help you and I think it also signals to the doctor like I have my shit together yeah (laughs) and you can't just be like here's the pill here's some Advil Mm. like we need to go deeper so and, and I think again that's part of just like the sort of empower and educate really kind of mantra I want to keep getting out there. 
Totally. Um, okay, so I also wanted to touch upon um, the DES and also the endocrine disruptors. The, mm-hmm. I mean, I want to approach it in a, uh, what's the word? I guess a, a careful way because I think mm-hmm. we, I think the risk with when you discuss these subjects um, and I've read about them myself and I think it's really important that we talk about it, um, especially because there are a lot of companies out there who are denying that their products do X, Y, and Z. Um, mm-hmm. But I also don't want to like scare people like because, you know, there's there's only so much we can do about this because we are living in this kind of environment. Um, so. I just, yeah, so I have not heard of DES before. Um, So so do you want to talk about that? And Sure. Yeah, just go into that. Yeah, I'll just give you the sort of the overview. Um, DES was the very first endocrine disruptor that was introduced into the human and the animal population from 1938 to 1971. And it was created actually by a British scientist who was he was in his lab and they were um, experimenting with synthetic hormones and came up with DES and it is one of those things that sort of got out of the shed kind of a runaway train the 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 original scientist who created it actually said this is not that this this chemical has a lot of side effects probably shouldn't be used, et cetera, Mm. et cetera. And later in life, I think even did more studies about it and about the side effects. But for whatever reason, well, in the U.S., there was a, um, the FDA was just the, which is our Food and Drug Administration, was just being formed in 1936, I believe. And so DES was the very first drug that was ever presented to the FDA for formal approval. Right. So before then, if you can imagine, companies just did whatever. They, yeah. <laughs> they just made drugs and sold them and mm. did whatever they wanted. Um, and this is the first time there had been a public outcry about uh, consumers had figured out that companies were putting arsenic on apples. And um. there was a huge outcry. So the FDA was formed and DES came along and it's an important drug because it really established some of the corporate playbook in the U.S. for how drugs are sort of pushed through regulatory agencies, which was the way they did it with DES was they gave doctors all over the country a lot of samples of DES and said, start giving these to your patients and then we'll use your anecdotal evidence to circle back with the FDA to say how great this drug is. And the idea was that a DES, the synthetic estrogen, would create, quote unquote, bigger, healthier babies, um, and that also to prevent miscarriage. And right. so that's why my mom was given it, because she had had two miscarriages before she had me. And the doctor mm-hmm. said, you know, and, and she, it's interesting because she was very like, huh, you know, and she didn't even take very much of it. But the thing with endocrine disruptors is Unlike other toxins, they're not dose dependent. So you can take a little and have a bad effect. You can take a lot and have a bad effect. 
you can do a combo. And so anyway, DES was kind of out of the gate. The FDA originally denied its, its, its approval. And then two years later, there was a new commissioner of the FDA and they approved it. And so women across the nation were prescribed this drug to prevent miscarriages. Um, sometimes it was put in prenatal vitamins without women even knowing. What? And oh, I know, it's really nuts. It's That's really insane. nuts. And at this, and at the same time, DES was being given to farm animals. Oh my god! So, so you may have not even your mom may not have taken it, but she may have been eating mm. it in a farm animal while she was pregnant with you. Yeah, yeah. And then you may have eaten it, you know, so it's, it was sort of, so in 71, I think they stopped it in human and I think animal the next year. But basically endocrine disruptors are interesting because they're not dose dependent. So it's not like if I take one teaspoon of lead, it's going to do X to me. But if Mm -hmm. I take three teaspoons of lead, I'm going to be dead. You know, it's, yeah, yeah, it's, you can have varying dosages. And the other thing is the endocrine system is a little bit like sort of your, your traffic light system of your body. It tells your certain hormonal responses to happen and, and not just reproductive heart, brain, you know, hormones run a lot of things in our bodies mm. and the endocrine system is saying, stop, go yellow, red all the time. And so you're really messing with things at a real foundational level at a very systemic level in the body and what we've learned is that in the fetal development process and children who are like zero to five are a lot more susceptible to endocrine disruptors than you are when you're an adult and you're fully formed and you know all your organs and everything are are all you know developed and formed Mm -hmm. so yeah, endocrine disruptors. So, so basically, DES um, daughters, as we're known, we are basically the canaries in the coal mine for what we call now today more modern day endocrine disruptors. Which the most famous one that comes to mind is BPA. Yeah. So yeah. everyone's heard of BPA, and you know, and there's there's like a million <laughs> endocrine disruptors from like. DDE to phthalates, you know, all different type of things. And there are actually natural endocrine disruptors, of course. So, mm-hmm. you know, obviously anything that would, but you would have to eat so much of it. And you would also have to, um, you know, it's not synthetic. That's the problem with, with the endocrine disruptors now. And, and I think you're very, very right in, in treading very, very carefully around endocrine disruptors because mm-hmm. It is absolutely overwhelming, and it, it, it is overwhelming to sort of think about. It, it just gets too much to, to, to handle, really, yeah. to think about. Um, and so, and, and one of the things I've been looking into, and I want to learn more about this, is just sort of really practical ways that you can just reduce what you mm-hmm. can, you know, because you can't, obviously, you know, until people start really taking on large corporations that are, you know, feeling like it's okay to spray DDT all over Africa still, even though it's banned in the U.S., wow. you know, then, you know, so there are large systemic things that yeah. you, can't, you can't do a lot about. So, um, 
one of the main things I've read that you can do is just take off your shoes when you walk in the house. Really? That's yeah. That's a that's a huge thing to really cut down on internal pollutants in your, your home. Wow. And I guess mm-hmm. I mean switching um, products in terms of like your cleaning products yeah. and they're like yeah. simple steps, aren't they? Like your yeah, what you put on your body like, and yes. And then you know eat organic when you can. Filter your water. You know, there's sort of just like you know, basic things that you can do. And, um, but endocrine disruptors, there was a guy who did a study. His name is um, Leonardo Trezond. He's at uh, New York University. And he did a study basically saying that with the rise of endocrine disruptors, we're going to be looking almost like a public health issue because endo and fibroids rise concurrently with the rise of endocrine disruptors. And as women come of age, you know, endocrine disruptors, if you think, okay, they just started really being put in the environment in 1938. So you've got that one generation of sort of BES daughters, and then you have another generation that have been subjected maybe to BPA or DDE or all these other things. Mm-hmm. So he he really views it as a sort of impending public health issue. Right. Um, and in Europe, I think they're doing more to look at it. I don't know if they've put any public policy in place. His study just came out last year. Yeah, I mean, I guess the thing is, is that if endometriosis and fibroids are only going to increase, um, it's it's scary far. Um, I think it's just a case of acknowledging the fact that we are becoming more aware of endometriosis and fibroids we're starting to take control and we're empowering women um there's so much more work to do but there's now more support there's more support than there's ever been within the community and we're starting to learn how to manage these so hopefully if this is going to be happening going forward that more of us are having this that we have a stronger voice we'll be able to manage it better and then we'll be able to work together to find a solution so I think for those who are like panicking about that and about future generations to try and take comfort in the fact that we are raising our voices and we are looking for answers. Um, so, yeah, do you, you know what I mean? I think that that's something that we have Abs- to Absolutely. And I, and I think there's two ways to acknowledge that. One is by empowering and educating yourself, just one person, just you yourself, mm. you're going to create a larger effect because you're going to go to your doctor and say, hey, look, I have all these things and this is what's going on. And then that doctor is going to see a patient two weeks later and be like, wait a minute, this person has the same thing and he's going to be more open, he's going to yeah. be more educated. So so even though it, it seems like sometimes when you, you have endo, you're just like, oh my God, I'm like so slogging uphill here. Every time you educate yourself, every time you ask a question, every time you push – you're you are doing like advocacy work even though it doesn't seem like it and mm-hmm. literally if you're an endo person and you like get up and you function to me <laughs> you're like you're already you know modeling something for, totally. for other people yeah. so and then I think on the infrastructural side and the policy side I think that's where we're going to start to see a rising crest because as you're saying, we're making our voices heard a lot more. 
And so I think there's going to be a lot more of that as well, because when we can get those infrastructural changes, a lot more women will be helped because the reality is women who don't have access to health insurance, women who might not speak English, women who don't have access to the education, the resources that we might have, they're going to continue to be in the dark until primary care physicians, those frontline people are starting to change or the, the diagnostics are starting to change. So yeah, I mean, obviously I salute you and, um, and I totally agree with you about your message that not to get totally overwhelmed. Yeah. I mean, it's just so easy to get overwhelmed with just endo in general. Yeah, totally. I mean, it's important to talk about. It's really important. I think the more that we can share that common narrative, I mean, I told you like when I get to talk to an endo girl, it's like, (laughs) oh my God, like I just love it because it's like finally someone's got that, that same narrative you do, you know, and you can laugh about the same thing. Mm. And, um, and so, yeah, the work you're doing is just, just really important and it's going to continue to move the needle. Thank you. And I completely feel the same for yours. I'm so excited to see like how bad periods progress. Just to close, do you want to give like free tips um, to women on how to like, you know, try to get the right care? Yes. I would say number one, track and document every single symptom you have, even if you think it's unrelated. Mm-hmm. Cool. Number two, follow your intuition. You have to figure out what's right for you. If you're sitting in a doctor's office and they're like, we think Lupron would be a great next step for you. You know what? It might be, but I would love you to just do a gut check with yourself. Yeah. Does that sound, does that sound good to my body? Does that sound, and I'm saying also educate yourself, do research on it, you know, Google Mm. the shit out of it, but then make your decision really feel into your body and feel like what is going to be the right next step for me. And then I would say three, just really, you know, be not afraid (laughs) to educate your care providers because Mm. as an endo person you're basically always going to be in a process of educating every single person you talk to about your symptoms yeah until you get to an excision specialist and and even then you're going to have to educate them on what works for your body so just don't be afraid don't be afraid to say this doesn't work for my body or I feel uncomfortable or Definitely. I think that's so important. Thank you so much for coming on. I've like, so that's it. Thank you so much for listening. If you like this episode, please rate, review and or subscribe. It helps others find the podcast. If you do have any concerns or questions about some of the subjects that were brought up in today's show, then by all means, you can drop myself or Megan an email. Um, Megan's contact details are in her website, which I've noted in the show notes. And of course, you can always get hold of me on my my email, which is hello at this endolife.com. Or if you want to say hi to me, um, I'm on Instagram at this underscore endolife. I'm on Twitter at this underscore endolife with capital T, E and L. And I'm on Facebook at this endolife.com. You can also have head over to my site, this endolife.com 
to have a read of my thoughts and ramblings on endometriosis and other chronic conditions and mental health issues. I also did just want to let you guys know that I am officially mentoring and coaching women around living a fuller life with endometriosis. So you can check this out on my website. So you can fill out my form online if you want to talk if you want to talk to me about that or you can just drop me an email whichever way is easiest for you. Thank you so much for listening and for being a part of this. I am hoping that in the next few I'm going to say months to give me some time in the next few months I'm going to be making these podcasts weekly um so yeah fingers crossed we shall see um I'm loving having you here for the journey and thank you and I will see you again in two weeks time bye